Welcome to the Shotguns and Sugar podcast, where we take a deeper look at topics you don't learn about in school. I'm Dr. McCloskey, and I enjoy exploring different parts of history. Jethro Tull was born March 30, 1674, the oldest son of Jethro Tull and Dorothy Buckeridge, and the grandson of James Tall and Mary Goddard. James had a brother. We don't know if he was older or younger, but he had a brother who was also named Jethro Tall. Confused yet? Jethro, who was the brother of James Tall, who married Mary Goddard, worked for many years as an agent managing the finances of Thomas Hussey Sr. This employment gave him the cash necessary to create his own farm, which he intended to be the ancestral home of his descendants. He named it Prosper's Farm. When the Husseys went bankrupt, the result of living beyond their means, much of the blame was put on Jethro, who was really no more than a rent collector. Consequently, Jethro was forced to sell or lease much of his own property to cover the Husseys' debts. He avoided losing Prosper's farm by deeding it to his nephew, the Jethro Tall who had married Dorothy Breckeridge. Prosper's farm was not a good farm. Over the years, the family rented it out to various people. One of Tall's tenants won a lawsuit against him for failure to pay his rent by arguing that everybody who ever worked on the farm failed because the land was so bad. Jethro, Dorothy Buckridge's husband, also acquired a farm by his own efforts, known as Halbury. Thus, upon his father's death, Jethro Tall, the one born in 1674, came to own two estates, Prosper's and Halbury. This Jethro Tall was trained as an attorney at the Venerable Gray's Inn, the same that Francis Bacon and his brother had attended more than a century earlier. However, he apparently had little interest in the law and, after completing his studies, began farming at Howbury. Jethro Tull did not have the physical constitution that agreed with the Isle of Britain's climate. Consequently, he spent long periods of time on the European continent exploring farming techniques in other countries, particularly the more temperate areas of southern France and Italy. At Howbury, Tull faced considerable farmworker resistance to trying new-to-them techniques he learned on these trips. This resistance caused him to look for ways to produce the same amount of crops with fewer employees. His efforts resulted in creating a tool that could plow a furrow, drop seeds in the furrow at an even distance apart, then cover them with dirt using a harrow. He called it a seed drill. It was the first agricultural machine with moving parts. Because it could do the work of several farm workers, it required fewer employees. Consequently, the farm workers rebelled and destroyed the drill. So he built another one and hired farmhands that would do his bidding. Although this is the generally accepted narrative, there is a tradition in the neighborhood of Prosper Farm that says the seed drill was first used there, and that the farm workers so disliked it they threw it in a pit and burned it. A few years later, on the Prosper Farm, he applied a technique that grape growers in Italy taught him to help the land retain its ability to grow crops. They were able to maintain their grape fields year after year by fertilizing them with cow manure. Although neither Toll nor the Italians knew it, but cow manure is high in nitrogen. Spreading the manure among the plants restored this important mineral to the ground, thus maintaining the crop from year to year. To help the farm workers spread the manure, he developed a horse-drawn hoe, a tool his workers also seriously resisted using. I wonder if the farm workers in Prosper actually threw the hoe in the pit and burned it, or perhaps both inventions. Although they were virtually ignored in his lifetime, these two inventions, the seed drill and the horse-drawn hoe, formed the technological basis of modern farming techniques using mechanization to support large field planting. 
1968, four British musicians, Ian Anderson, Mick Abrahams, Glenn Cornick, and Clive Buckner, were trying to come up with a name for their newly formed band. Their agent, who had studied history in college, suggested the name Jethro Tull in recognition of Tull's importance to British and world agricultural history. Suffice it to say, the name has stuck. More than 50 years later, the band is still performing. Although Tull invented his seed drill in 1701, the Industrial Revolution is said to not have begun until 1760. To me, this illustrates the fuzzy nature of placing the starting date of these types of eras. In 1797, Charles Newbold, an American blacksmith from New Jersey, filed a patent for a cast iron plow. The first of its kind to be patented, Newbold's invention was an improvement on an iron sheath plow developed in England in 1720. Newbold's plow featured a one-piece cast construction with wood handles. The typical plow of the day was completely wooden. They did not cultivate the soil nearly as efficiently as Newbold's. He was not, however, able to sell many of his plows, as farmers thought, incorrectly, that the iron would poison the soil. A decade later, David Peacock developed a steel version of Newbold's plow. He sold about 100 of them before the courts awarded Newbold $1,500 in a patent infringement case against Peacock. In 1819, another farmer, Jethro Wood of Sipco, New York, developed a plow with an interchangeable tip, permitting the farmer to change out the point of the plow without replacing the entire blade. With that history in mind, recognize that the steel plow did not come into general usage until 1833, when a man named John Deere developed his sodbuster plow, opening the Great Plains, America's breadbasket, to cultivation. Contemporary to Newbold was Eli Whitney's invention of the cotton gin. Developed in 1793, the gin separated seeds from the fibers in the cotton bowl. Before Whitney perfected his ginning process, this was a labor-intensive activity that vastly increased the cost of cotton before it could be spun into yarn or thread that could then be woven into fabric. Although cotton fabric was around before Whitney's gin, the machine made cotton so popular that it really created a whole new product. Exports to England from the de-seeded cotton bales created the need for larger, faster fabric manufacturing facilities, moving the textile industry from the cottage to the mill. As the mills created an ever-growing appetite for ginned cotton, southern farmers responded with a coincident growth in slavery to expand and care for the fields. The demand for cotton and other textiles, primarily linen in America and wool in Europe, prompted the conversion of manufacturing from the historic putting-out system that created the cotton industry in the 1600s into the modern textile industry. Five men, all in Britain, and their inventions were primarily responsible for this evolution. John Kay's invention of the flying shuttle, James Hargraves and the spinning jenny, Samuel Crompton's invention of the spinning mule, Edmund Cartwright and his development of the power loom, and finally, Sir Richard Arkwright's invention of both a rotary carting engine that replaced the older hand carting tools and a way to connect all of these inventions into one smooth process using his spinning frame. This process was key to combining the power, machinery, semi-skilled labor, and the wool from the sheep to create mass-produced yarn. In the eyes of many historians, this achievement alone qualifies him to be credited as the creator of the modern factory system. One of the few events tied to the Industrial Revolution that actually took place in 1760 was Robert Bakewell's return home from the continent. 
Bakewell was the oldest son of a farm manager in Dishley, a small town located in Leicestershire. During his 20s and early 30s, he traveled throughout Europe and the Americas studying various farming techniques. When his father became too ill to work, Bakewell returned home and took his father's place as farm manager. He divided his herds of cattle and sheep, placing the males and females into separate fields, and proceeded to mate selected females and males with the intent to emphasize particular strengths found in the two. His efforts constituted the first selective breeding of farm animals. Because of his selective breeding choices, the animals grew in size and quality over those who did not follow his methods. He sold the product of his efforts to nearby farmers who raised the animals and sold them to local butchers, creating the concept of farm animals being raised for food instead of use on the farm. He also developed irrigation and fertilization methods that improved the fodder for his animals. The idea of selective breeding was not new. The first humanoids who settled along the Tigris and Euphrates used some form of plant hybridization to domesticate their crops. Selective breeding of dogs and sheep are thought to have occurred some 10 to 15,000 years ago. So Bakewell's real genius was how he took long-held theories and practices and applied them in a commercial setting specifically to create a type of animal that was bred solely for the purpose of human consumption. His work included improving his existing breeds of longhorn cattle, shorthorn, and of course, sheep, to name only his most important works. So important was Bakewell's work that Charles Darwin, in his seminal work, The Origin of Species, credited Bakewell as the inspiration for his concept of natural selection. Mexican explorers like Hernando Cortez brought the first cattle to North America. They brought the same kind of cattle used in the bullfighting ring. However, without the opportunity to graze during the conquistadors' marches, the cattle grew weaker. When they became too weak to keep up, the Spaniards simply left them behind to fend for themselves. Without the limitations of their Spanish masters, the cattle stopped to feed on the yummy grass on the side of the trail. These cattle not only survived, but thrived. In the ensuing decades, they grew stronger and more agile. Their long horns, ideal for fighting in the bullring, also gave them an effective defensive weapon against native wild animals looking for dinner. At the same time, English settlers along the eastern seaboard brought their local breeds with them. In the 1820s, as entrepreneurs like Stephen F. Austin and Benjamin Rush Milam began to settle in the Spanish colony of Tejas, they brought their British-descended cattle with them. When the cattle from the east met the wild cattle from the west, the Texas Longhorn was born. Between 1850 and 1857, Texas Longhorns supported California miners in some of the earliest cattle drives. Their hardy constitution helped build much of the culture of the American Southwest. The Texas cattle business suffered greatly during the Civil War as ranchers enlisted in the Confederacy and fought beside Eastern troops in Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. After the war, Texas ranchers learned that the Northern herds had been decimated to provide food for Union forces, resulting in a shortage of beef throughout the North. In 1866, Charles Goodnight's invention of the chuck wagon spurred the Texas cattlemen into action. For those of you who may not be familiar with the term, a chuck wagon is a traveling kitchen and hospital designed to fill the needs of cowboys away from the comforts of home. In an effort to fill the northern cravings for Texas beef, the cattlemen used Goodnight's invention to establish the Shawnee and later the Chisholm Trails. Drovers took their herds north across Oklahoma into Missouri on their way to St. Louis. 
Later, after the Missouri farmers closed their border, they ran them north and west to the railheads in Kansas, and from there shipped them east to the St. Louis or Chicago meat processing plants. Although they're famous in Western lore, the cattle drives were actually relatively short-lived. They started in 1866, but the invention of barbed wire in 1874 heralded the end of the open range vital to the long-distance cattle drives. Also, the arrival of the railroads in Dallas and Fort Worth in the mid-1870s reduced the need for stressing the cattle on long trail drives. Although the drives continued occasionally after the railroads came to Texas, by the 1890s they had stopped altogether. That said, back in the 1980s, my uncle, who operated a ranch in Nevada, put me on a horse to help his hands drive some cattle from one pasture to another. After only two hours on that cow pony, I never thought my legs would straighten out again. Some may not include it in the list of agricultural contributions to the Industrial Revolution, but I think food canning is incredibly important to both the agriculture sector and to our modern society, so I'm going to include it. In 1795, Napoleon Bonaparte was having difficulty keeping his troops well-fed. So he asked the French government, this was before he became a dictator, to hold a contest giving an award to the person who could come up with a better way to preserve food so he could use it to feed his army while they were out taking over the world. The winner was Nicholas Appert, a French chef who had been working on the problem for several years before the contest began. Although he never learned the science behind it, he discovered that he could preserve food if he took a glass jar and packed it so full of food that there was no air in it, then seal it, making it airtight, and placing it in a hot water bath. Napoleon used jars of good quality French preserves canned using Appert's system in his ill-fated campaign against Russia. In 1810, Peter Durand, an Englishman, found that he could use Appert's system with a steel can lined with tin plating instead of glass. Durand's system found a market in the ship's captains who used the canned goods to store their foodstuffs for their crew. The canned goods resulted in an overall healthier crew with fewer instances of diseases like scurvy, although the number of deaths increased due to lead poisoning. The tins were sealed with lead solder. By 1812, English immigrants and the seamen who brought them to the Americas brought canned goods and Appert's canning system with them. However, their introduction met with quite a yawn here in the former colonies. Initially, its greatest use was for canning specialty foods, like turtle meat, for shipment to Europe. In the 1840s and 50s, immigrants traveling west occasionally purchased canned goods for use on the trail. Also, starting about 1850, canned goods were made available to California miners, although relatively few purchased them. In fact, it was not until the Civil War that canned goods gained popularity. In 1861, a Union supply master visited with Gail Borden, founder of the Borden Condensed Milk Company of New York City. He placed an order for 500 pounds of Borden's condensed milk for Union troops. He also informed Borden that the Union military would be requesting larger orders in the future. Thanks to the Civil War, Borden's condensed milk was the first commercially successful large-scale food canning operation in the United States. These three developments, the new farm machinery like Tull Seed Drill and Hoe, Goodyear's Chuck Wagon, and the creation of a canning process for food preservation, all illustrates agricultural's contribution to the Industrial Revolution from its inception through the end of the 1800s. 
However, these are not all of them. I wonder if, with a little study on your own, you can come up with three additional agricultural-based improvements tied to the Industrial Revolution in the 17 and 1800s. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shotguns and Sugar podcast. If you'd like to learn more about this topic or access a list of resources used to create this podcast, check out our website, shotgunsandsugar.com.